So this past week was the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Uh, the day after he was murdered, a teacher in Riceville, Iowa, decided to teach her third grade students a lesson about bigotry uh, by having them actually experience it. Uh, the teacher's name was Jane Elliott, and uh, those of you who are in education may know this lesson, which has come to be called Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes. Uh, Miss Elliott divided her class by eye color, and she told the children with brown eyes that they were naturally superior, that she gave them high praise, special privileges, and then she told the children with blue eyes that they were naturally inferior, unruly, untrustworthy, and she treated them like second-class citizens all day. And then the next day, the roles were reversed. What Miss Elliott saw shocked her, she said. I watched what had been marvelous, cooperative, wonderful, thoughtful children turn nasty, vicious, discriminating little third graders in 15 minutes. And after two agonizing days, Miss Elliot explained to her students that the exercise was over and that what both groups experienced was a filthy, nasty word called discrimination, which means treating people a certain way because they're different. And when she asked the children if that was fair, they all shouted in unison, no. They learned, however briefly, what it felt like to be victims of prejudice. And, and here's really then the overriding lesson on that. What you believe affects how you behave. What you believe affects how you behave. The belief of racism led to the behavior of discrimination. But behavior stems from belief. Conduct stems from doctrine. What's doctrine? Doctrine is your belief system. What you hold to be true will affect how you live your life. And, and, and the fruit of your life reflects your belief system. Does that make sense? I mention all this because it's really the subject of what we're going to explore as we look at the New Testament book of Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 15. You'll find that on page 923 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, uh, there's a copy in the pouch in front of you. Please, you can take it as a gift from this church. Put your name in it and receive it as a, uh, just as a welcome from our church family. But in Acts chapter 15, we consider doctrine and conduct, belief and behavior, what you hold to be true affecting how you live your life. And Acts chapter 15, more than one scholar has mentioned that Acts chapter 15 is the most important chapter in the book of Acts because it deals with Christianity's core belief, core doctrine. And without this doctrine, there is no Christianity. So this is a heads-up passage of Scripture. It's very, very important. I'm going to read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And I want, as I'm reading, I want you to be thinking about, what is this crucial doctrine that the pastor is concerned about? You'll see, I hope. 
But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is God's word. So without this doctrine, there's no Christianity. And I want to make sure that we identify what this doctrine is, this, this um, deal-breaking doctrine concerning our faith. What I want to do, though, is set this in the story. There's a story here. So we're kind of just reading a few verses out of an entire story, and that story is composed in Acts chapter 15. What's the story? And then out of that story, uh, I want us to identify what the doctrine is, what the truth is, and then there's a take-home lesson, because this is not just history uh, discovery here. This is Relevant. This is personal for our lives and for the life of our church. Uh, so it's kind of a what, so what, now what? What's the story? What's the doctrine? What's the take-home lesson? But let me tell you, and let me impress upon you how important this is today. You know that we live in a world uh, where there is a lot of yelling and little listening. And that conduct comes from a from, um, that conduct comes from a doctrine. That Americans hold. And it's this. My self-expression is more important than my respect for you. That's where that's coming from. My, my, my self-expressing myself takes priority over civility to you. And see, that's the doctrine. I mean, I mean it, it may not be written anywhere, but it's, but it's written everywhere. Okay? That's why it's important. And so when our, what would it be like for our community in Champaign-Urbana, our county, 
to say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I am sick and tired of that cultural doctrine. Is there a better way? And wouldn't it be wonderful if our community said, well, yeah, there is a better way. I know a spiritual community, and they gather uh, in group on Sunday morning and then throughout the week, and they are an otherworldly embassy of heaven. Let's seek wisdom from them. And what an opportunity that would be. So that's why this matters. So here's the story. The story involves the Apostle Paul and Barnabas who went on the first missionary journey. The book of Acts tells about the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then throughout the entire world. And at first, the gospel was centered around Hebrew ethnicity. But Jesus, Jesus' people are more than those of Hebrew ethnicity. They are both Hebrews and non-Hebrews. They're Jews and Gentiles. You say, well, who are the Gentiles? Well, that's a, that is a term coined from a, a Hebrew perspective. So from the Hebrew mindset in the first century, there were only two ethnicities. <laughs> there were Hebrews and then there were non-Hebrews. And non-Hebrews were everybody else. That was just their mindset. That was part of their worldview. And then Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of Abraham who said, through you, through the Hebrew people, all people will be blessed. And the book of Acts begins to chronicle the blessing as the gospel goes out in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the world. And the apostle Paul <laughs> What a wonderful sense of humor God has that he would take someone who in a former life was a fixed, rigid, legalistic Hebrew and through Jesus changed him so that now all he preaches to are non-Hebrews. Who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? But that's exactly what's going on here. And so Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church on their first missionary journey. And they returned to Antioch, the church that sent them out, and they had these wonderful experiences where they witnessed God at work, uh, bringing people to Jesus. And when Paul left a town, he didn't just evangelize one-on-one. -on -one. He left spiritual communities called churches, these embassies of heaven. And uh, they were all over. They began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And these spiritual communities were full of people who were either Hebrew and non-Hebrew. Slave, free. Married, single. Young, old. They were all fulfilling God's promise 
in Genesis 12 that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. And Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch and report on this wonderful news. And I love how Paul and Barnabas stated it in Acts chapter 14, verse 27. They gathered the church together and it says, listen to this. They declared all that God had done with them. So this is about what God is doing. And then he says this. How God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So God's opened this door. People are coming to Christ. Uh, churches are being planted and established. And there was much joy, which was threatened in chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's great that they're Christians. That's one. It's great that they heard the gospel. It's great. But, if, but in order to, if they're really going to be Christians, they need to be circumcised. They need to keep the covenant of Moses. And I'm Paul and Barnabas went on tilt. It says they got into, what's it say? No small dissension. Now that's Luke's polite way of saying, big argument. <laughs> Big argument. And finally, a delegation from Antioch, where they were, went down to Jerusalem and said, we're going to have a conversation about this. We're going to talk about this with the apostles and the elders. And so some group went down from Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas arrived in Jerusalem, and they testified to what God had done and uh, once again, after Paul and Barnabas had told what the Lord had done, the Pharisees, verse 5, the Pharisees were a legalistic group. They rose up and they said, it's ne no, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the list keeps getting longer and longer. Do you see that? And then it says, verse 7, after much debate... Much debate. I don't think that means it was 30 minutes. There was much debate going on. And finally, three voices spoke. Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James. And that's what the following verses cover. Peter stood. Brothers, he said to them, you, you know, let's think about this. You know my experience with Cornelius, who is not a Hebrew, in Acts chapters 10 and 11. You know that. And you know that God chose me to speak to him and the Gentiles. And you know that God knows everyone's heart. You know that God gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave us on the day of Pentecost. Verse 10. Why then are you putting a yoke on the neck of these disciples that neither we nor our fathers can bear? Now, you know what a, you know what a yoke is, don't you? Yoke. yoke. Yoke is uh, something you put on an animal's neck to control the animal. Peter says, we're not in the control business. We're in the gospel testifying business. And, and, and anyway, as a people group, we've not been able to keep the law of Moses. 
Why would we expect non-Hebrews to? And then Peter gets to his big idea. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's what Peter had to say. And then Paul and Barnabas stood. And you could have heard a pin drop as Paul and Barnabas just testified to all of the signs and the wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And do you see how God is the subject of all of these verbs? It's not like, yeah, I preached a killer sermon there. I'm telling you, it was really good. I, was, I could hardly wait to hear what I had to say. That's not what Paul's coming. He's saying, this is what God's done. This is the work that God is doing. Here's what God is saying. Here's who God is reaching. And then finally, James stood. You see that? In verse 13, now who is James? Oh my goodness, there are so many Jameses in the New Testament. So let me tell you who this James is. This is James who is the, the leading elder or the bishop in the city of Jerusalem. This is James who is the brother of Jesus. This is the James who gave us the letter of James later on in the New Testament. That's who this James is. And James says in verse 14, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, now wait a minute, who's Simeon? That's Peter. Why didn't he say Peter? Well, because Simeon is Peter's Hebrew name. <laughs> okay, does that make sense? Are you with me still? Say yes. All right, good. Okay. <laughs> Even if you're not with me, say yes. All right, no. No, that's, that's, that's what's going on here. So Simeon, Simon, Simon, Peter has just told of God's work in the life of Cornelius. He just talked about how the Holy Spirit came and clearly God is at work and Paul and Barnabas are witnesses. Don't you see the people of God consist not only of Hebrew ethnicity, but non-Hebrew ethnicity. Those who belong to the people of God are those who by the grace of God have put their faith and their trust and their hope in the resurrected Son of God, Jesus. Don't you see God is fulfilling the prophecy of Amos, verses 16 and 17, in our lifetime right now. God is rebuilding, verse 16, the tent of David. He's restoring it. The, the tent will house both Hebrews and non-Hebrews on the same ground. Therefore, James says, verse 19, Therefore, we should not trouble those who are turning to God. Some of your translations say, We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. And James urged a letter to be written. And in essence, the letter says this. Hebrew Christians, your non-Hebrew converts, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. So um, the non-Hebrew Christians do not have to become Hebrews culturally before becoming Christians. You're saved by grace through faith. That's the gospel. Non-Hebrew Christians, your Hebrew Christians are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Please practice sensitivity to those whose lifestyles are different from your heritage. 
So, it, you know, it's incongruous for believers in Jesus to participate in idol worship and all the trappings. And it's incongruous for believers in Jesus to be sexually immoral, to participate in sexual relations outside the man-woman marriage. And, and as for food, please ensure that, that your, your meat has been properly butchered out of sensitivities to your Hebrew brothers and sisters in Christ. That is, don't flaunt, use your freedom in Christ to serve one another in Christ. And, and everybody, yeah, that's dual. We can do this. Okay. And verses 22 to 29 detail the communication plan. And a letter was drafted, and it uh, was taken up to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were, and then it was and copied and sent to the churches that Paul had planted. And everybody was everybody was cool. Uh, everybody was encouraged. And there was a delegation from Jerusalem to go up to Antioch, Judas and Silas, and and then uh, uh, and after a time, Judas and Silas went back down to Jerusalem, and and uh, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, and all was well. And that's the story, okay? It's the story. It's the story of, um, of the most important chapter in the book of Acts because it deals with the most important doctrine. And you know what that doctrine is? Have you, did you get it in verse 11? Grace. Grace. Great, grace. And, and so here's the big idea. Grace is our only ground before God. That's it. You don't have grace. No grace, no gospel. And so this chapter is about grace was on trial. Grace. Um, the New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek, and the word is charis. Charisma. A gift. It means gift. It's a, it means a gift that makes glad. It means, uh, it means a you were thinking about me kind of gift. You know, there are gifts that we've gotten for Christmas that are going to be in July's garage sale. Now, that's not grace. Grace is all oh, you were thinking about me. It's a charming gift. It's a lovely gift. Grace describes God's attitude toward us, his goodwill toward us. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is what God has done to rescue us from Satan's realm and then put us in his own, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. Grace turns our hearts to Christ, keeps our hearts in Christ, and changes us so that we look more and more like Christ. Grace, a gift that makes glad. Grace is, grace is more than sin payment. Grace is more than, oh, someone paid off my mortgage and now. That's great. It's more. Grace is God's power at work in my life doing for me what I cannot do myself. That's grace. And so grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And it's, it's love that seeks me out when I have nothing to give in return. Uh, grace is love coming at me that has nothing to do with me. Gr grace is being loved when I'm unlovable. 
In fact, grace is being loved when I'm the opposite of lovable. Grace is one-way love. One-way love. And some of us may be thinking, well, pastor, all you're talking about is what God has to do. What do I have to do? What do you have to do? What do you have? You want to know what you have to do? You know what? You want to know what your part is? Okay, here it is. Your part is stop resisting. Stop resisting. The greatest threat to grace is a cancerous heresy uh, called performancism. Performancism. Performancism is Jesus plus. Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus religious deeds. Jesus plus taking communion. Jesus plus getting baptized. Jesus plus church activities. Performancism. Performancism occurs when our work, not Jesus' work, becomes the objective. You see, when I became a Christian, my position changed. The moment I received Christ, when I trusted him, when I cried out, Lord, rescue me, my position changed from 0% forgiven to 100% forgiven. My position Now, my condition is a work in progress, right? It's a kind of a lot like the stock market. Goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And, you know, I don't know about your heart, but my heart for God is in one place at 9 a.m., and then it's in another place at 2 p.m., and then it's still another place at 7 p.m., okay? And performancism says... You are only as saved as the emotional state of your heart. And I really want to help us with that. Mainly, I I need to be reminded of that. You see, grace says that I am saved only because of the substantive work of Christ on the cross. Hebrews 11.1 Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the problem with performancism is that it leads to pride when we succeed and shame when we fail. And it will ultimately lead to slavery because then it becomes about us and what we need to do to establish our own identity and worth instead of resting in Jesus and what he has accomplished to establish it for us. Performancism occurs when I try to find in my own efforts what can only be found in the effort of Christ. So, performancism is saved by grace, kept by works. <laughs> and that is, that's so dangerous. Please beware of that. And I think sometimes we contribute to that in in the church business, I guess, us pastor types. We ask, we ask really kind of what amount 
reacts to performancist, performancist questions. Maybe you've been asked this question. It's really a dreaded question. Uh, it's kind of the question you hope you don't get asked. It's when someone says, how's your walk with Jesus? I hate it when someone asks me that question. What am I, what am I supposed to say? Right? I just kind of teeter-totter, you know, between not sounding too saintly and, and then not admitting that, you know, I'm the devil incarnate. I mean, so, you know, so I just kind of, so I just kind of talk about God's goodness and uh, throw in a few harmless sins and <laughs> really, how's your walk with Jesus? Hey, you must be Jesus. Truth is, my walk with Jesus depresses me if, if defined by how well I happen to be behaving. Okay? So there, I said it. Now, now here's the good news. Okay? The good news is that's not how Jesus defines my walk with him. See, see the, the, the quality of my Christian walk is not contingent on anything I do. Because the only thing that I bring to my salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And that truth never changes even after I become a Christian. You know, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I, I, I've already said that. And no amount of Christian activity will change that. The only thing that changes is the presence of Christ. See, His presence is what changes my life. And my mindset and out of that mindset comes manners. See? So, I, you know, I'm in Christ. He, he has submerged me in his perfect life. So he comes into my life as savior and friend, the one who walks with me despite how I look, which is terrible, and despite how I smell, which is like death, and how fully capable I am to ruin his reputation. How's my walk with Jesus? It's fantastic. I'm walking with Jesus. I mean, if I fall, he picks me up. If I run off, he chases me down. If I take him to places he should never have to go, he, he never leaves me alone. I'm in company that he shouldn't be seen with, but he proudly walks with me. He never acts embarrassed in front of his other friends. Now, my walk with Jesus isn't dependent upon me because in every way I fall and I get sidetracked and I roll around in the mud. And, but Jesus, is, he's, already, he's, he's already walked in perfection with me and for me. And, and that melts my heart and makes me want to walk with him. Okay? Here, here is a classic example of this. Um, and I've relayed this so many times that I can't remember if I've told you this. But bear with me. Humor me. So a few weeks ago was our Celebrate Recovery's ninth anniversary. And we had an open floor sharing. And it was just, a, it was just heavenly. And one brother stood up and he told the story about how uh, someone else in the Celebrate Recovery community had 
And they always tell each other, you know, right as they're leaving, celebrate recovery. You know, don't turn right, make sure you turn left. Don't turn right, make sure you turn left. It was just their encouragement to one another. Walk with Jesus. Well, one night after the CR, the person turned right. And uh, they are a recovering alcoholic, and they turned right and went into a bar. And they sat down there at the bar. And, uh, and, and a relapse was imminent. But Jesus was with that person. This is beautiful. Just as this person was about to order uh, something that would, that, that, would, that would derail them, the bartender said to the person, what are, what are we celebrating? And the person what? What are we celebrating? The person realized they'd left their name tag on. Celebrate recovery name tag. Huh? I haven't told you this, have I? Good. <laughs> I don't want to be one of those pastors. Yeah, we heard that one illustration before. So anyway, do you know what the person did? They got up without saying a word and walked out. How's your walk with Jesus? Yeah. It's great. I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. And that's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. And, and it's our only ground. Our only ground. What? So what? Now what? Well, how can I tell whether or not I'm grasping grace? Um, let's look at the text here. Principle number one on that question, watch for exhaustion in your spiritual life. Watch for exhaustion, right? A yoke, if, you know, a, a, if the yoke is hard and the burden is heavy week after week after week after week after week, you know, grace doesn't do that. Jesus said, Jesus has a yoke, but what does Jesus say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Performanceism is never easy and it's never light. Watch for the exhaustion. Second principle is, listen for language. Listen for language. So if you hear phrases like, well, if, then, or wouldn't it be nice, or we should all, or anything that smacks of the imperative voice, that's, that's performanceism. That's performanceism. But if you hear the indicative voice, God is... We are. God will. Well, that's, that's grace talking. That's grace talking. All right? Watch for exhaustion. Listen for language. And then, principle number three, how gracious are you toward others? How gracious are you toward others? I read a sad story about a husband and a wife who were having terrible conflict, terrible conflict, and finally, the husband said, look, I'm willing to stay together for the children, but only if you agree to these rules. Rule number one, you will make sure that my clothes and my laundry are kept in good order, that I receive my three meals regularly in my room, 
that my bedroom and study are kept neat, and especially that my desk is left for my use only. Rule number two, you will renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forego my sitting at home with you, my going out or traveling with you. Rule number three, you will obey the following points in your relations with me. You will not expect any intimacy from me, nor will you reproach me in any way. You will stop talking to me if I request it. You will leave my bedroom or study immediately without protest if I request it. Rule number four, you will, not un you will undertake not to belittle me in front of our children, either through words or behavior. Four rules. Anybody know who wrote that? Albert Einstein. Do you think she stayed... Nah, she didn't. Not a chance. But he was a fantastic physicist. I wish he had known grace. Because grace demolishes this rule-keeping stuff, this rule-making stuff. This competition stuff. Grace to my, you see how practical this is? Grace demolishes the idea of scorekeeping. In fact, grace laughs at the thought of it. There's a song in uh, the 70s called the Pina Colada Song. And the singer wanted out of his marriage so badly that he answered a one ad in the newspaper for someone who liked pina coladas and someone who liked getting caught in the rain. And what happened when the two finally arranged to meet? What a surprise. It was his wife. It was her husband. And the, the lyrics finished this way. It was my own lady, and she said, oh, it's you. And we laughed for a moment, and I said, I never knew. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a charming song. Two unsatisfied spouses are both seeking the same thing. They just don't know it. And, and finally, they fall down from their unrealistic Olympian level of performancism and they finally laugh at themselves and they start again from humility because they both realize they both need grace. It's the only ground upon which we stand before God. You, you, you realize now why we say that great, there's no grace, there's no gospel. So, so, how generous am I at sharing the abundance of grace God has flooded on my life? Here's the deal. The more I share God's grace to others, the more I experience God's grace myself. And so now I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to pray. To whom does God want me to share his grace today? 